Welcome to episode 64, Selecting and Implementing Technology in a Clinical Practice, Ethical and Practical Concerns, featuring Rob Reinhardt, Licensed Professional Counselor. From Clearly Clinical, learn, grow, shine. Hello to our listeners, and thank you for joining us today. I am excited to introduce Rob Reinhardt. He is a licensed professional counselor and a licensed professional counselor supervisor, and he is the CEO of Tame Your Practice, and he is really best known for his expertise in helping clinicians choose an electronic health record. Um, he has a robust background doing the work that he's currently doing. He also uh, has a wonderful tool called Describe Deck, which is a card deck to help us have better conversations with our clients in session. Uh, for today's purposes, however, he will be talking with us about selecting and implementing technology in a clinical practice. Um, hello. Good morning to you, Rob. Hey, Beth. It's great to be here. Uh, thank you for joining us. Why don't you tell us a little bit about you and about your background? Um, this is the one I always have to practice my elevator speech because I'm one of those people that has to be doing like 40 different things at once. Um, and so I have to distill it down to the very bare minimum. So I'm in private practice. Uh, like you said, I'm a licensed professional counselor supervisor here in North Carolina. So I see clients. I also supervise other LPCs working toward licensure. Um, and then I am the CEO of Tame Your Practice. I'm helping people all over the country. Uh, choose and implement software and technology to help their practices run efficiently um, and also help them make sure they're complying with HIPAA and ethics. Uh, and then I've also created that deck of described cards uh, that are used not just by counselors, but teachers and families uh, to help them communicate. And those are just the big ticket items. Thank you for joining us today. Um, in terms of your specialization with electronic health records, how did you come to develop that? Yeah, so I had, you know, this is like my 12th career. I have a background in software development and information technology. I was a programmer. I was an information technology director for a company prior to coming to this field. So, you know, I went back, I got to a point, I always knew I wanted to do this. Uh, I went back to school, got my graduate degree, got into the field, and quickly realized that most of the people in this field do not have my background. Uh, they don't have a business background. They don't have a technology background. Uh, so, you know, at the time, I was starting my own practice, and I was out there looking for the best practice management system slash EHR for my practice and ended up looking at all of them and never found the one that had all the features I wanted. Uh, and realized that I had all this information that would be really useful to people. So I figured, hey, let's put it up on a website. Uh, and that's how Tame Your Practice was born. Uh, and I've been keeping those uh, reviews up to date ever since then. That was almost 10 years ago uh, now. Uh, and then, you know, started talking with people and realized they also wanted help choosing other uh, technology for everything from email to texting to uh, secure videos, telehealth has been growing over the years, uh, and also wanting help with the business side of their practice. So that's how it all got started. Gotcha. Um, from a nitpicky perspective, I'm just curious, and I've never really understood, what's the difference between an electronic health record and electronic medical record? Why do some people say EHR and some say EMR? That's a great question. I'm glad you asked it because I was hoping we'd get to it. It's probably good to address that right here up front. So you've got EHR, electronic health record. You've got EMR, electronic medical record. You've got practice management system. So some of them have actual very technical specific definitions. So let's start with EHR. So uh, EHR, electronic health record, actually has a very specific technical definition under meaningful use. So meaningful use uh, is part of the Affordable Care Act, also known as Obamacare. And that was passed in order to make healthcare, uh, the provision of healthcare more efficient, to be able to let providers transmit information between each other so that, for example, when you go into your primary care physician and they refer you to a specialist, you don't then go into the specialist and have to start all over, filling out all new paperwork and telling them everything. They've already got received that from uh, their physician. Uh, obviously, we haven't reached the ideal yet. That's the target goal. 
But that's where EHR has a very specific definition in that there is a certification process that EHRs can go through in order to be meaningful use certified. They have to be able to communicate with the other EHRs and meet other certain criteria uh, for the government bodies to say, yes, you have reached this certification level as an EHR. So that's the technical definition of an EHR. But then there's the generic definition of EHR, uh, which is what a lot of people use to refer to a lot of these uh, platforms that I review. Your therapy notes, simple practice, therapy appointment, Theranest, uh, Council, many others. A lot of people refer to them as EHR for shorthand because uh, it's quicker to say than practice management system. Uh, but really what they are is practice management systems because an electronic health record is really focused on just that, the health record of individuals, so diagnosis and notes, whereas these systems get into billing and scheduling uh, and telehealth and all these other features. So when you hear me talk about EHR today, I'm using it in that generic sense. I'm referring to something that may not be just an EHR, but also a full-fledged practice management system that goes beyond that. And just to make sure I cover EMR, electronic medical record, is even more specific, really just referring just to the medical part of, of the health record. And it's kind of falling out of use. Um, most people are, are not using EMR as much anymore. It's, it's pretty much EHR. Thank you. I appreciate you breaking it down and telling us the difference between those because I've heard those used and sometimes it's interchangeable and it's someone like you that knows what the difference actually is. Right. And most of these that are targeted to us in behavioral health won't be meaningful use certified, yet they'll still call themselves uh, EHR. So it's more of a generic marketing term for what they're doing. So the segues into kind of the, the backbone of our talk today what kind of technology do most clinicians use in their practices? Yeah, so there's so much technology you can use. And so part of the answer to what are they using comes down to, and, and this is a big piece of choosing software, is determining what the need is. What is the goal you're trying to accomplish with choosing software? And that is really the place people need to start when they start. Because a lot of people will say in our field, will say, well, what are other people doing? I want to do what other people are doing and is already working. And that's a piece of the puzzle. But all of our practices, uh, you know, differ in ways. And so you really want to be looking at the big picture of what is the goal I'm trying to accomplish? What do I want my practice to look like? And what are the tools I can put in place to get me to that vision that I have? Uh, and so the question, the answer to what technologies are people using, hopefully they're using the ones that help them create their ideal practice that accomplish their goals and vision. And so the combination of softwares that might fall into that can include an EHR. Uh, it might include secure email, uh, texting. A lot of people are uh, getting into telehealth this, these days, and that may actually be part of their EHR slash practice management system. Several of those have telehealth uh, services integrated into their system now. Uh, other people may be getting that separately. Uh, then there's the business side. People may be using different software to do the accounting uh, piece because even as, as robust the feature sets are with these EHRs, many of them don't provide full accounting features. And to be clear, there's a difference between billing and accounting. Billing is very focused on, hey, what do we need to charge people? How are we collecting that money? Accounting gets into your full business tracking of, okay, we also need to track things like expenses. Uh, and so a lot of these EHRs don't go so far as to be covering expenses and be able to be a full accounting package. So you'd have to have a way to do your accounting and do your taxes. Uh, if you're a group practice and you have employees, you're looking at payroll, things like that. So that's another area that people may be getting uh, into technology. Then there's websites. Uh, these days, more and more people are finding their mental health clinicians uh, via the internet. Uh, even if they get a referral some, from someone, they may want to go to this website and see what you, you and your office look like and read about you before making an appointment. So websites, uh, technology, people are using more and more they use cell phones, uh, they use virtual phone systems. So that's another area uh, of technology that people are looking at. And so 
you know, the complete picture of it, what any one practice might be using is hopefully determined by, you know, what their goals are and what their needs are. Lots of things to choose from out there and hard to know which ones are actually compliant with HIPAA, which ones are performing well and will stand the test of time. I know I've seen a lot of different things kind of pop up and then within the year they kind of dissipate the interest because something happened, because they weren't actually compliant or because um, the voice over IP wasn't as good as we thought it would be. Yeah, and it, it can be a challenging market for companies to branch into because of the the regulations, because of the compliance challenges. Um, and therapists don't tend to have the deep pockets that other uh, medical providers like doctors and dentists and others have. Uh, so there's not as much uh, money for those businesses to, to make. So you can see some people kind of try to break into the market and, and not you know, and fail. I think the other difficulty too is that all of these services you're talking about, uh, at least as I've seen, they're not one-stop shopping. It's choosing a phone system over here and then choosing a practice management system and then setting up the website. And what do you do if someone wants to email you through the website that you end up having all of these different services that you're having to keep track of and having difficulty knowing if they're all actually functioning well and fully compliant. Yeah, exactly. And as much as many of the practice management system EHRs are trying to be uh, give you as much as they possibly can in one place, I don't know that we're ever going to see one that covers all those bases. It's just too much to cover. Uh, and there's a lot of benefits to having a system that has most things in one place, but there's also some great benefit to choosing an application that focuses on one thing. Uh, in a lot of cases, that application that focuses on one thing is going to have more features uh, and possibly do that thing better than another application that's trying to do 40 things at once. One thing I see a lot is um, the struggle that behavioral health professionals have when they have had paper records and now they're starting that transition into an electronic health record system. What's some of your guidance or your feedback, your observations about that transition? Yeah, that's a good question. First, you know, again, they need to look at, you know, what is driving my need for this transition? Sometimes it's that uh, more and more insurance companies are requiring electronic claims. Uh, or the efficiency of doing everything online or wanting that client portal where clients can schedule appointments and complete paperwork. Uh, but your, a lot of your reasoning and the, and the goal and the vision that you're trying to get to will drive how you will make that transition. Uh, as far as a tangible, practical recommendation, one thing I recommend to people that are transitioning, whether it's from paper to electronic or uh, from one EHR to another, uh, is to create a plan that lets you do it somewhat piecemeal, or at least as piecemeal as possible. And by that, I mean, uh, let's say you're doing the paper thing. You're trying to convert from paper to an EHR. Don't feel like you on day one have to have all of your clients and the next year's appointments in that EHR. Uh, it's While it's a bit of work at the start, it, it's often what I recommend is to do things in parallel. So keep doing it the way you've been doing it. And when you decide uh, that, you know, August 1, and that happens to be the day we're recording this, but if August 1 is your start date, uh, then get your appointments for the next week in this EHR uh, and start to build from there. Decide that from August 1 forward, all of our future notes and electronic filing and so forth is all going to be in the EHR and build from there. Don't feel like you've got to scan and upload all of these old paper records. Um, because, you know, especially if you're a larger practice, it's just not feasible. You know, you may just have to keep those filing cabinets and keep the old paper records for a while and just make all of your new stuff electronic. Plus, by doing that staggered approach where you do both things in parallel for two, four weeks while you're getting up and running, that gives you an opportunity to catch any gotchas. You know, most of these EHRs offer a free trial. Uh, so you may have missed something during that free trial period. So you want to have that opportunity to get in there, start using it, see, is there something you'd missed? Not necessarily something that's a deal breaker, maybe something that you realize, Ooh, we might have to adjust our workflow, change something around, and it's going to be easier to do now before we've entered all the clients and 
fully adopted the system and those sorts of things. That's a really helpful perspective about basically choosing a date and then moving forward, do it one way. Of course, for me, looking at it from the law and ethics standpoint, making sure too that folks stay in compliance with whatever their state requirements are with regard to record retention. I know for me, I, I was in paper and then went to technology-based practice management software. And that transition, I think for anybody, um, is kind of stressful trying to make sure we're doing it correctly. Well, and that's true. And the good thing is that in some ways, going with these third-party vendors actually reduces that stress, has the potential to reduce that stress. So think about, uh, let's say you're going electronic, but you're thinking about storing all that stuff yourself. So now you suddenly on your shoulders have the responsibility of how am I going to encrypt all this data? How am I going to make sure this data is secure on my computer or my server or my external hard drive? One of the benefits of going with these third-party uh, systems, especially the cloud-based systems, is they're going to sign a, a business associate agreement with you. If they're not, then you need to avoid them because you can't comply with HIPAA uh, without getting that business associate agreement. What that says is they're going to comply with HIPAA too. They're going to do all the things they're supposed to do as far as keeping your data secure and so forth. And what that lets you do is offload a significant portion of your HIPAA compliance responsibility because now the vendor is storing the data and encrypting the data and doing redundant backups of the data and keeping logs of who is accessing the data. These are all things that HIPAA requires and you don't have to track them now because the vendor is doing that for you. The one caution is that um, a lot of people have this perception that, well, hey, as long as I go with this HIPAA compliant vendor and get that BAA, I've checked my box and I'm done. And that is not the case. You still have some work to do. You still have to do your piece of the puzzle, which includes things like making sure you're using secure passwords because the vendor can be doing all the wonderful encryption and security techniques they want. If you're using a password like 1234, you've just ruined all of it. So you still have the things you need to do on your end, like having policies and procedures in place and physical and administrative and technical safeguards. Uh, but having the vendor take on the bulk of that is a huge time and energy saver. I'm glad you point that out in the extension of different policies in addition to that BAA because I think it's easy to rely on that and say, oh, I have a piece of paper, so now it's this person's responsibility, but that we still have that primary responsibility to make sure that the systems are in place to support the safety of that data. So what about the ethical side of it? So we have you know, HIPAA being the legal side, uh, but what about the ethical implications of technology use? What do you see? Well, with ethics, we get into a lot of areas uh, and there's a lot of crossover with, with HIPAA and ethics. One of the first questions that comes up for me with ethics is there's a number of people that uh, you know, feel like, well, maybe I don't need to comply with HIPAA. And this kind of crosses over ethics and HIPAA. So to go back to HIPAA for a second, you know, to be a covered entity, HIPAA defines a covered entity as somebody who participates in a covered transaction. And for us, that's primarily filing electronic insurance claims. And if you are a covered entity, then you have to comply with HIPAA. So, you know, according to the letter of law, you know, if you're not filing electronic insurance claims, you can claim that you're not a covered entity and therefore don't have to comply with HIPAA. The challenge is that most of our codes of ethics have either been rewritten to specifically address technology uh, in the case of the ACA, or have had guidance provided that interprets how the Code of Ethics views technology like the NS NASW has done. Uh, and all of them are pretty much saying, look, you need to be securing this data. This is part of your Code of Ethics to, to protect protected health information and make sure it's secure. Now, it doesn't outline exactly what you have to do uh, because that would be way too much for our professional organizations to take on to get into security and encryption of data and what fits the bill. Uh, they instead say, hey, you need to be doing best practices, whatever best practices is. Well, you know, if the question ever comes up, well, how do you figure that out? The thing most likely to be pointed to would be something like HIPAA, uh, because it's been around. It is kind of the standard uh, best practices at this point. Uh, the other thing to keep in mind also, and I think you touched on this, most states now have their own data privacy laws. 
So even if you ignore HIPAA, even if you ignore your code of ethics, most states require you to protect uh, data. And that doesn't just go for mental health and medical professionals. Uh, most state laws that get into data privacy affect all businesses. All businesses have a, a legal responsibility to protect data. So even there, you're being mandated to do something uh, to protect your data, uh, protect the client data. Uh, so to get into broader ethics responsibilities, then we get into, well, what's the technology we're talking about? So when you talk about EHR, you know, your ethics pretty much comes down to informed consent. And this is really part of HIPAA too, but letting people know where is their data stored and what are you doing to make sure it's secure. And your ethics exploration gets broader when you get into things like how you communicate on social media. Do you have a social media policy in place? Do you inform people that you don't connect with them on Facebook or LinkedIn and how you handle online communications? Uh, so it's kind of like that initial question of what technologies are people using? Well, the, the list might be endless and therefore the ethical quandaries and questions might be endless. When it comes to things like an electronic health record or just protecting the record itself, um, what do you find to be kind of some of the ethical issues that you've seen in the work that you've been doing? Um, I don't know that I've heard ethics issues. I see lots of questions like you talked about earlier you know, people needing to make sure they understand what their responsibility is for keeping records. Um, so, there, you know, a, kind of a standard is seven years, but in case of things like Medicare, it's often 10 years that you have a responsibility to keep records. Uh, so knowing what your code of ethics, as well as any insurance policies require. Um, here's a, This may not be what you're looking for, but this is an interesting ethical quandary I've seen with group practices. Uh, in a lot of traditional group practices, you have an entity, the practice, and then you have either employees or contractors under that practice. Uh, and inevitably, there's a situation where one of those uh, employees or contractors leaves that practice and goes out on their own. Uh, and there's a number of ethical issues there. Uh, but a big thing that comes up is a lot of these practices will do will try to have a non-compete clause uh, in their contract, um, and they will claim that you know they are the owners of the you know the client. They are, the clients are their clients, and the records are their records. And there's some uh, obvious liability reasons for them to do that because they want to make sure it's clear that they own the records and they because they have a responsibility to supply them for X number of years. But it creates this ethical quandary where what if the client wants to go with that counselor uh, wherever they end up going? Uh, you know, how are the records handled at that point? Uh, and fortunately, most people follow ethical standards and make sure the clients have a choice uh, and that their records are available. But I have seen situations where it uh, hasn't been handled particularly well. I have as well. And I'm glad you bring that up. Um, what happens when clinicians also leave group practice environments. I heard a question not too long ago, or sorry, not group practice, but agency. I had a question not too long ago from someone that had been contacted by a place that they had worked many months ago and had been asked to add to their documentation. And so it was an interesting conversation about what is your kind of ethical obligation to the record for another company. Interesting. So they were asked, uh, they were no longer working there, but they were asked to either add notes or do addendums to notes. Yes. Interesting. Yeah, it was a really interesting issue. And I saw uh, that there was a social media discussion that therapists were weighing in, attorneys were weighing in. And, and I think part of what this whole conversation is about is also the fact that there are a lot of gray areas, uh, just like you brought up with HIPAA, that while there are any number of us listening to this who are not bound by HIPAA and our private practices, it's still really the gold standard at this point. And as the days pass more and more, when I think about best practice, effectively what that means is if we got 100 therapists in a room and said, what are you doing about X, Y, Z, or what would you do in this situation? Best practice becomes kind of what the majority of the people in the room are doing. So HIPAA's functioning that way. And there's that kind of gray area. And just in general, I think the, the implementation of technology and these kind of weird ethical quandaries, we don't always have a firm answer until there's some kind of case law that points us in a certain direction. 
Yeah, exactly. And I think that's probably one of the areas I see people struggle the most with uh, HIPAA and even ethics are those uh, gray areas. You know, therapists want to focus on helping people. So they don't want to uh, have too many of these gray areas. They just want, you know, the answers to how the business needs to run and the, the records need to be handled. Uh, but, you know, HIPAA by its nature had to be vague because it had to address everything from large hospitals to solo providers. And so they had to intentionally make it vague and say, hey, this is what you need to accomplish. And how you do that is kind of up to you within certain parameters. Um, it's kind of the same as our code of ethics. Uh, you know, we don't always get a hard and fast, this is how it has to be handled from our code of ethics so much as guidelines. And so, yeah, that creates some gray areas and leads to these conversations. But hopefully those are, are good and positive and productive conversations. I agree. So we've looked a little bit at some of the legal and ethical implications. Now, looking at the practical side of it, how do clinicians choose technology when there's so much out there? What do you find? Like, What do you consistently hear therapists are doing to find the right technology for them? Yeah, so you're asking what they're actually doing, and then I have an answer to what maybe would be a better way to do it. And again, I'm going to speak generally. Not everybody's doing it this way. Uh, but as I hinted at earlier, what I see a lot of people do is just go online and say, hey, what's everybody else doing for this thing? You know, what EHR is everybody else using? Uh, what's everybody using for secure email and texting and so forth? Um, and I absolutely agree that should be part of the process. Uh, what I've seen all too often is that's all anybody somebody does. If they just say, hey, what's everybody else using? And they, you know, pick the one that most people uh, have chosen or at least use that as a guidepost without doing some of the other steps. Uh, and I have a five-step process in uh, my guide to choosing an EHR that really fits the selection of any uh, software or technology that you might use for your practice. And the first step is, is conceive. Uh, and that, that's where I was talking about earlier, that first you got to decide what is it you're trying to accomplish. Before you try to cram a square peg into a round hole, you need to figure out, you know, oh, wait, I have a round hole here that needs to be filled. So that's the first part. What is What am I trying to accomplish? What are uh, all the things, uh, what are my goals? What do I need to make happen? What does my workflow look like? Those sorts of things. Uh, from there, you look at assessing. You get more specific. This is what I would like my workflow to look like. So an example would be, well, our calls come into a receptionist. We're a group practice. So our calls come into a receptionist who needs to be able to see the schedule in an EHR, find open appointments, match them up with the right clinician, put the appointment in. The clinician needs to somehow find out. Maybe it's automated uh, you know, notice from the system or what have you. Uh, and then an assessment happens. And then they take the note uh, and file the claim. So working out what your ideal workflow is is an important piece. And I'm talking about this in the context of EHR, but you do the same analysis with anything else, uh, whether it's secure email or texting. It might just be easier with those things that are only focused on one piece of functionality as opposed to an EHR, where you may be trying to get billing and scheduling and everything all in once. So only after you've done that conceive and assess step and developed what I call a needs assessment or a requirements document, uh, that's when you go out and you start to look at, okay, what's available that would fit my criteria? Let's also talk to other people, see what they're using, because now I can actually communicate to them, hey, I'm looking for something that does X, Y, and Z. And instead of getting, because when you go out and say, hey, who's using, what's everybody using free HR? You might get 12 different answers. And you may be hearing from somebody, let's say you really value that client portal. You really want clients to be able to log in, uh, set appointments, do their intake documentation, and you don't take insurance. So you don't care that much about insurance filing features. Uh, and then some of these other people who you've said, hey, what are you using, are coming back with, oh, I use X and it's awesome. But what you don't realize is they don't care about the client portal and they do a lot of insurance. So now you're getting recommendations for systems that aren't a good match for you. So if you've done this conceive and assess, you've created your needs assessment document, you say, hey, 
I'm looking for recommendations for EHR and X, Y, and Z are extra important to me. If it doesn't have these things, you know, I don't really necessarily want to hear about it. And so you're going to get much more quality focused feedback from others at that point. And that's also an area that my reviews on, on Tame Your Practice, the ones that I've kept updated for 10 years help with. And then the next steps are all about, you know, implement and maintain, you know, choosing, making your final choice, putting it into place, and then doing what you need to do to maintain that system. One thing that I see in my world, in the clinical documentation world, is the difficulty with the maintenance part. What do you recommend clinicians do to help keep themselves adherent to whatever policies and procedures they had initially established so that we don't have that kind of regression to the mean as time passes? Clarify for me, are you seeing difficulty with people keeping up with paperwork? Um, not only keeping up with paperwork, but making sure that things stay updated or going through and, um, say, documenting phone calls with outside providers, things like that, that those are the things that kind of fall by the wayside. What do you see in the um, maintenance of the technology use that providers need to be checking on every quarter or every year? How, how do you recommend they do that? Or is it not really a problem that you see? Well, when I talk about maintenance, I'm mainly talking about what are the things you need to check in on, whether it's your HIPAA risk assessment or, any, or changing of passwords to maintain the use of the system. But with regard to your, you're talking about functionality and making sure you're keeping up with documentation and complying with you know, your need to generate treatment plans and document uh, all your contact with the clients. Uh, some of that, the EHRs help with. Um, so many of them will actually give you, um, to use an old technology term, a tickler uh, or a reminder that, hey, you haven't done a progress note for this session. Um, and so you'll log in and on your dashboard see a reminder that, oh, wow, I'm, I'm behind. I've got six notes I haven't done. I better get on that. Um, what they won't necessarily help with is, you know, that phone call that you had, making sure you document that because, you know, the system doesn't know about that phone call. So in some cases, it's a matter of getting some help from that system that gives you reminders. But in others, it's a matter of establishing good work habits. And really, that's the case for making sure you don't get to where you're behind by 15 notes. You know, the system can be clean and user friendly and it can make it super easy for you to do your notes. But it still requires that you uh, sit down and, and make that happen. And that's often a conversation I have with people when we're talking about which software would be a best fit for the practice. Sometimes uh, it's not just, hey, which software is going to meet your needs and have the features that you want, but which one are you going to use? Which one fits your workflow and your style uh, and your subjective sense of usability that you're going to make sure you're actually using it? Because if you don't establish those good habits of doing your documentation uh, in a timely manner, and things like that, then no system in the world is going to solve that problem for you. I think your point about, say, the password update, those are the kind of things that I think a lot of us don't even think of. Um, and making sure that we have technology to, well, set up to really help us stay um, ahead of that wave, whatever those responsibilities are. And then on the documentation side, what you said is absolutely true. Like, how do we have systems that will make us get our documentation done and make sure we're actively using and implementing the EHR that we have selected. Um, but I, I think there are so many things that can be done within an electronic health record to help set things up, to help set you up and your practice up for success. And I think a lot of clinicians don't even know that those are out there, like being able to modify templates. What do you see that can help clinicians get their documentation done, keep things secure, um, what what have you heard? What do you find? Yeah, you hit on an important one, the fact that most of these EHRs come with some form of template. Uh, most of them have already done the research to see, hey, you know, what it, what is required to be in a progress note, a clinical note, uh, in order to not just satisfy HIPAA, uh, but also satisfy insurance companies should they come around for an audit. Uh, so just knowing that those templates are there and knowing that if you follow that template, uh, you're likely covered should an audit occur, that's a huge help right there. 
Um, there's another number of other bells and whistles in these EHRs that will uh, remind you of things. Some of them will actually remind you every X number of days, hey, it's been 90 days, it's time to change your password. Uh, some of them will even let you set what that interval uh, is for yourself. Uh, so part of the challenge is going in and deciding, okay, what of you know, establishing your policies and procedures and establishing what you know needs to happen. So, okay, we're going to change passwords every six months and our documentation has to be done within three days of a session being completed. These are just examples. Uh, and then deciding, you know, once you've chosen your EHR, identifying the things that it doesn't help you with or doesn't provide you reminders with and establishing some other tool or method for making sure that gets done. I think one of the things that I see when it comes to making sure clinical documentation gets done is the ethical impact for clients. I know that I've been in agency-based environments and sometimes clinicians get very far behind, especially new clinicians or if you're in a really uh, high level of care where there are lots of crises, it's easy to make that a back burner item. And then ethically, you get months behind. I've seen sometimes from clinicians. And it's, I think what's nice about EHRs is that some of them are working so hard to try to make documentation as efficient as it can be while still capturing medical necessity and the nuances of what's going on clinically. Yeah. How, how have you seen that help and protect clinicians? I've certainly had people that I've uh, done consultations for uh, talk about how much easier it was for them to produce documentation uh, by using one of these EHRs, whether it was for an audit or just supplying records for a client for some reason, maybe they've transferred care or they're trying to collaborate uh, with their primary care physician and collaborate care or their psychiatrist. Uh, just the ease of now accessing and being able to supply that documentation. Uh, and again, you know, having those templates that guide you through getting that documentation done and making sure it's complete. You know, another thing to mention uh, most of these EHRs provide you the opportunity to keep a separation between your clinical progress notes and your psychotherapy notes. Uh, and HIPAA clearly defines the difference between these. And I'll go ahead and talk about that because some I still run into people who aren't totally clear on this. So your clinical notes are the notes you would supply to an insurance company uh, or to another provider. Uh, minimum medical necessity information, you know, whatever information you need to document that justifies the diagnosis uh, and justifies the treatment that you're doing and shows your progress. And so that's your clinical progress note. And then your psychotherapy note is, you know, your general impressions, things you want to make sure you remember that the client said or that you want to address with them next time. Um, and, you know, those are technically separate things. Uh, you certainly want to be aware of what your state law says about accessibility uh, of those things. Uh, so in other words, you know, the clinical record is uh, the client is able to access it. HIPAA grants them the right to their own medical record. Uh, most states have laws about that as well. The psychotherapy notes, however, your private notes is a different matter. Uh, and you really need to make sure you understand case law in your state about accessibility of those psychotherapy notes and then decide how you're going to handle them. I'm glad you bring up that point because that is something I also hear that clinicians have confusion about. And Again, it's in some ways, it's, it's also one of those gray areas. What happens if we're looking at something that is much broader than an insurance company requesting medical records for reimbursement? Um, what happens if, if a client commits suicide? Um, so there are, I, I recommend the same of people knowing what the state laws are in their state so they can help make sure they're in compliance with expectation of these, the way we're storing basically different pieces of information. Correct. Yeah. So what are some mistakes that you see clinicians make in relation to technology? Uh, I think I've mentioned a couple that I consider mistakes. One being uh, your first step, asking everybody else what they're using and then jumping right into something without you know, doing that analysis of your practice and what your needs and goals are. Uh, the other mistake I've mentioned is people assuming that, hey, as long as I get this software that's HIPAA compliant, 
uh, I'm good to go. And note that what I just said is inaccurate. There is no software that's HIPAA compliant. Only vendors can be HIPAA compliant because only human beings can check off all the boxes of making sure encryption is in place and establishing policies and procedures. So those are a couple of the, the biggest mistakes uh, I've seen. You know, another one that's kind of a soapbox issue for me, and I've done a number of keynote uh, presentations on this, and that has to do with social media usage. Uh, a big mistake I still people see, and again, this is that gray ethics area, but I see people talking about client referrals online. Uh, and there's this idea that, well, as long as I, you know, am, am not using too much identifiable information about the client, then it's not a big deal. And our ultimate goal here is to help that client get referred to the right person. Uh, but there really just isn't a way uh, to completely de-identify a client. You know, the measuring stick for that for me is if the client saw your post uh, and could identify that it's them, then there's a problem. Uh, and there's a number of other problems there, one being that whether you're in a private listserv or you're on a Facebook group, there's absolutely no way you can guarantee that there's only licensed professionals in that group. You know, if you're in a small in-person case consultation, uh, you've identified everybody, uh, everybody's been authenticated, so to speak. You know they are who they say they are and they're licensed clinicians. You know, you can establish that trust that everybody there is ethically sound. You can have case consultation knowing that details aren't going to leave that room. That's just not the case on the internet because you don't know who's in that group. Uh, people can copy and paste things anywhere. Uh, and so it's really risky to be sharing any client details online. That's something I actually have seen. I saw once in a Facebook group that a client did observe what a clinician had asked about them in a group, and apparently the client produced it and was able to let the clinician know that they were aware that they were being talked about. Um, so I think you bring up a very good point. Uh, when it comes to those kind of things that are technology related, how do you recommend clinicians uh, ask for help for things like referrals? What are the right ways to be doing that? Yeah. So I get into deep, when I do my keynote, I get into detail about but the short version of it is make it uh, counselor centric. And I use the term counselor. I know not everybody's counselors. Other people are social workers and marriage and family therapists. I use counselor for shorthand but make it counselor centric. Instead of saying, hey, uh, I've got an adolescent who's dealing with anxiety and is, has Blue Cross insurance that needs help, say, I'm looking for a counselor who works with adolescents who's in network with the Blue Cross and, and helps people with anxiety. It's a minor semantic difference, uh, but when you talk about uh, you know, Google and Facebook farming information, it makes a huge difference. When you talk about people seeing these posts online, you, it also shows that you're not talking about a specific client. You're looking for a specific provider. Thank you. I think that's really helpful. It's easy for us to think about technology and its impact when it comes to things like our private practice, but it's also how we are conveying information. It's something that I've even struggled with with these podcasts when we have people that are talking about client examples, making sure that we are stripping as many details as possible, changing as many details as possible, because we need to consistently be able to protect the identity and the private information of our clients. Right. So when we look at the large scale overarching themes coming from our talk, you're saying basically be very deliberate in really thinking about what you need, particularly in your practice, and then review options, ask around, look at what uh, is working for other people and what might work for you, and then carefully implement it and have a full plan. What are some other pieces of advice that you think clinicians might be overlooking when they're looking at different electronic health record systems? Like what are some things that are out there, but a lot of clinicians don't realize like, yeah, this is something you need to pay attention to. Like I think your point about billing and accounting, that those are different things. What are some other points that are important for people to be reviewing? Yeah, um, I'll try to throw out a hodgepodge of things. You know, uh, one would be telehealth is, is growing. More and more people are looking to provide those services. Uh, some of these EHRs have it built in, and that can be really convenient. 
be sure to weigh the pros and cons of it. However, again, that's one of those things where uh, might your needs be better served by a dedicated telehealth application that has more features. You want to make sure uh, that that specific, don't just be sold, oh, it's got telehealth. Yay, that checks that box for me. Make sure you look at the specific functionality. Uh, for example, a lot of the EHRs that have integrated telehealth uh, either can't uh, or don't make it simple to connect with more than one person. So if you're working with a family or a couple who are not in the same place connected via the same camera, then that may not have all the functionality that you need. Whereas if you get a dedicated telehealth solution, uh, you may be able to have that functionality. Um, so, and that goes not just for telehealth, it goes for billing. If you're a group practice, are you going to be able to generate the reports that you need to support your payments to clinicians, uh, to be able to track what insurance claims have not been paid in over 30 days and you need to track them down, things like that. So, you know, that brings me to kind of the point two, which is, you want to make sure the features you want uh, are there, but don't just base your decision on that. You need to look at those second and third level features too. Uh, so you may have an application that, okay, it's got my top three things, and that's awesome. But what if it's missing the next three things that you want? But there's this other application that's only missing one of your top three, and it has all of the next three. You might have an important decision point to be made there. So again, Making sure you look at your full picture, your priorities, uh, engaging that, you know, that full decision. And the, you know, another point I didn't mention earlier, this is especially pertinent to EHR. You want to make sure you get the decision, uh, the be make the best decision that you can, because it is not fun to switch. So a lot of these uh, EHRs will make it fairly easy to export data. The challenge is uh, once you get beyond client data, they're all using their own proprietary database for storing things. So client data is easy. You know, everybody's storing it as first name, last name, address one, address two. You're going to be able to export that and import that into another system. But they're all doing their billing and their progress notes differently. So you're not going to have an easy way to pull it out of one and push it into another one. So you really want to do your best job uh, picking the one that not just that you need right now, but that matches the vision you're building toward, looking at, hey, what's my practice going to look like in five uh, years? That's the system I want to get now, the one that's going to still work for me five years from now. I think that's a really important point you bring up of the importance of making sure you're selecting the right program. I know I've worked with a lot of companies that will what I call move into an EHR and then realize that it's not working out and then they have to move everything out again. What do you recommend for private practice or group practice clinicians that have found themselves in exactly that situation? Well, another way to avoid it is make sure you take advantage of these 30 day trials and really put the thing, put the system again, whether it's EHR or secure email or whatever, really, you know, put it through its motions, make sure it's doing what you need it to do. Uh, another thing is to make sure you ask questions. So even if it seems like the system's doing everything you need to do, make up some questions. You know, look for something you don't fully understand and ask the vendor questions because you want to gauge how responsive they're going to be and how helpful they're going to be if you do have issues. So that then later, if you do find yourself in that situation where you're thinking, hmm, I'm not sure we made the right choice, first step is to get in touch with the vendor who hopefully has been very responsive up to now and say, look, I didn't realize this thing was going to, was not there or was not going to function the way I thought it was. Am I missing something? Is it, does it really work this way? And I'm just not clicking the right button uh, or is this something that you can change or is going to be added in the future? You know, that's step one. Can, can this be corrected? Uh, because that will be a lot easier than switching. And again, that brings me back to a rationale for doing that staggered approach to implementing a new system. Do it a little bit at a time so that if you catch it two weeks in, you haven't put all your client data in there yet, it's not as big a deal for you to back out, keep using your old systems and, and reassess the situation. Um, there obviously have been more dire situations that I've helped people with um, that are often not inside their control. So, um, using a system that company either sells or shuts down 
uh, and now they're having to transition. You know, in that case, you know, a lot of the advice I would give is very context dependent. You know, what exactly is the situation? How much time do you have to make a switch uh, or make a decision about what you're going to do next? Um, so it's a little hard to give specifics on that. Thank you for even providing a little bit of guidance. I think that's helpful. Um, for our listeners, can you restate again those five steps that you'd mentioned a little bit ago um, about choosing and implementing technology solutions? Just go down the list. What are they again, just so they can hear them and have them floating around in their brains and considering them? Absolutely. So the first one's conceive. You know, this is just sitting back and saying, what is it I'm trying to accomplish? You know, instead of just hearing, well, everybody's doing telehealth, I need to run out and get a telehealth application. Okay, well, what does that look like for you? Are you trying to build a telehealth only practice? Uh, or is this just something you want to have handy for if your in-person clients can't make it to the office that day? Or, they, you know, they have a sick child or they're running late from work and you just want to have that as an option for them. Because what you might choose may be very different depending on whether you're trying to build a telehealth-only practice versus having it as a, an adjunct to what you're already doing. So conceive. That's the biggest piece is make sure you're clear. What is the goal that I'm trying to accomplish with this solution? Uh, then you can uh, list those needs. You can assess those needs. Once you've brainstormed, you can start to put it down on paper, start to delineate it, create your requirements document. What are the things I have to have? What are the things that would be nice to have, uh, but won't be deal breakers for me? And what are the pie in the sky items? You know, things that I think may not even be out there, but boy, would it be nice to have them. And then you get into the evaluate step. That's where you're doing trials. You, you're better able to narrow it down to only the ones that meet your primary criteria. That's where you ask other clinicians uh, what they're using that fits your primary criteria, and then you get to implement and maintain. So the big piece in the selection part are conceive, uh, assess, uh, and evaluate. Thank you. I appreciate you breaking it down like that. Um, a question I have, what are some of the kind of horror stories that you can see going wrong in technology when it comes to our practices? Um, that's a great question. I can think, you know, I'm a tech guy, so I've seen a million things go wrong. So I can think of all kinds of terrible, horrible things. So part of me is hesitant to answer that because I don't want people walking away scared to death. These things are going to happen because a lot of them are very low risk. They're not likely to happen. So, for example, probably the one of the worst case horror scenarios I can think of is that one of these EHRs gets hacked. Uh, and the hacker actually is able to access protected health information um, and publishes it online. And all of the providers using this EHR uh, find out that there are thousands of clients have all their information and diagnoses and everything posted online. That's pretty scary. Uh, but it's really unlikely to happen. Uh, because these EHRs, I mean, their their entire business is staked on the security of their data. Uh, their data is supposed to be encrypted not only in transit, meaning between you and them, but at rest. So when it's sitting on their servers, it's supposed to be fully encrypted. So even if a hacker gets into that system and gets a hold of the data, they shouldn't be able to decipher it. So just to be sure everybody's in clear, encryption is basically a way of scrambling data where only the person with the decoder ring uh, can read the unscramble it and be able to read it again. So even if the hacker gets in there, they shouldn't be able to even see what the data says. So I can come up with lots of horror stories. Um, the question is, can I come up with one that's uh, you know, more realistic, that is more likely to happen? And again, a lot of that comes down to how well are you doing uh, a risk assessment? So HIPAA requires that we do a risk assessment. What are all the places that we are storing protected health information or transmitting protected health information, what are the risks? Well, it could be hacked, it could be stolen, I could leave my laptop at Starbucks, and what am I doing to mitigate those risks? Not get the risks to zero, because that's not possible, but get, the, get it as low as possible. Okay, well, I'm using strong passwords, I'm doing full disk encryption, so it's hard to come up with a horror story that's, that we're likely to run into if 
we've done this risk assessment. We've come up with a solid plan for assess- addressing all of those risks and have implemented it. Does that make sense? That absolutely makes sense. So if we are already using systems that are protecting us, then the chance of any of these things happening is going to be so slim anyway. Right. doesn't make it zero, uh, but it's small enough that we don't need to be walking around worrying about it. It's like if you do leave your laptop in Starbucks, well, as if you've done full disk encryption uh, and you've done what you need to do with regard to HIPAA to make it impossible or close to impossible for a hacker to access that data, then you're covered. You still don't want to leave your laptop there. You'd still end up having some stress over that, especially if it was a brand new one you just spent a lot of money on. But so it's hard for me to come up with a, a horror story that's likely to happen. That is probably actually really comforting to our listeners that you can't easily render all of these stories just at the tip of your tongue that are are likely. You're saying it's, it's extremely unlikely that any of this will happen. If you're being diligent and you do need to be diligent because, you know, our market, it, you know, is our market is a target. Healthcare information is huge on the black market. You know, getting a hold of insurance information and other things so that you can file fraudulent claims. I mean, that's big money on the black market. Uh, so it's not like we can just lay back and say, oh, we're just a tiny little solo provider, so we're not a target. Uh, you do have to be diligent and make sure you're doing everything you can to secure that data. In addition to the things that we've already discussed today, what are some kind of last pieces of advice that you would like to give to clinicians that are listening? Uh, what are the things that you walk away from doing a presentation? You're like, oh, I wish I'd brought that up. Or someone said this and I want to want to reply. What are those kind of last little tidbits that you think are really helpful for people to keep in mind? So, you know, I know that there's probably people out there right now feeling overwhelmed listening to this. It always happens when we talk about technology because uh, it's like a foreign language to some people. So to those people, I say, take a deep breath. Uh, and do the same thing you likely tell a lot of your clients, which is to break it down into small chunks uh, and tackle it a little at a time. So even if you haven't taken the first step uh, to, toward HIPAA compliance, you know, and things feel overwhelming, you know, just think about, okay, what are the steps I need to take? And let's just look at taking the first step over the next month. Okay, my first step is to uh, start to document all the places that I'm storing and, and transmitting protected health information. Just break it down into those chunks and do it a little bit at a time. Because if the HIPAA police ever do come around, and that's going to be unlikely unless there's a complaint filed against you, um, at least currently, if you're making the efforts, if you can show documentation that you're making your efforts, that's what they're going to be looking for. So, you know, one piece is, you know, if you're feeling overwhelmed, break it down. Uh, Another is to prioritize. If you've got a long list of ooh, these are all the technology things I want to address. Again, go back to your five-year plan. What does your practice look like in five years? What are the solutions uh, or workflows or goals that you need to put in place that are going to best move you toward that vision or you feel like need to be put into place first and start there? So really rank your priorities. Absolutely. Wonderful. I think that's really good guidance. Because we're not getting any extra hours in the day. Um, and we all know how it is to be busy working with clients and doing your documentation and taking care of the business end. And then we try to squeeze in this HIPAA compliance and looking for new software thing. So, you know, unless you've got uh, assistance to help you with or a lot of free time, you're not going to get to it all. You've got to prioritize and do a little bit at a time. That's a really good point of making sure people start with the most important issues first and then come up with a plan, Um, the react versus respond theory. Yes, absolutely. Wonderful. Thank you so much for your time. We are really grateful. Um, How can people get in touch with you? How can they uh, take advantage of some of the resources you've touched upon today? Please just remind us. Yeah, the easiest way to find me is at tameyourpractice.com. That's tame like a lion tamer, tameyourpractice.com. I've got all kinds of uh, free articles up that talk about a lot of things that we've talked about today. So you can go into the articles menu and see the archive. Uh, The EHR reviews that I do are one of the main menu items under that articles uh, link, uh, including uh, the article on the the five-step guide to choosing a best fit EHR, which you can also get. Uh, In the mini guide, if you subscribe to my mailing list, there's a free mini guide to choosing an EHR that includes those five steps. 
Uh, and of course, if there's something you're curious about that you don't see in my uh, free blog article uh, archive, you can always drop me an email and let me know if I have anything on it. Wonderful. Thank you again, Rob, for your time. I think you shared things that are really going to help people feel more confident when they start this process or even those that are already in it, knowing how to set up some systems that are going to help support um, a positive experience of technology in their practices. Oh, thank you for having me, Beth. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Take care. You've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership, where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.